at what point do we see that you and I being alive at this very moment, that our existence cannot be anything close to some random occurrence? Not to mention that all of these numbers would need to be multiplied by each other to get the full picture. So simply to shrug our shoulders and say, well, it all happened by chance, I guess. My friend, saying that would be infinitely dumber than what Jim Carrey said after being told by the pretty girl that the chances of her dating him would be one in a million. So you're telling me there's a chance, he said. Well, no, nobody. There's no chance. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to The Andrew Macho. I'm so happy that you've tuned in, man. I'm pumped to be here with you again. I hope, how's your week starting off? Pretty good. I mean, depending on what day you're listening to this, depends obviously if you're starting your week or not. But either way, thank you for tuning in. Hey, if you like this show, you like the conversations that we have, the topics that we cover, would you share it with a friend? It would mean so much to me. And especially if you follow on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, rate the show on all the podcast platforms, it would mean a bunch. Hey, last week we talked about why do athe- why do some Christians become atheists? We try to answer that question, right? Why do some Christians become atheists and leave the faith? It was really interesting to read some of the comments of what I assume are atheists who were once Christians defending their position of why they became atheists and why they no longer believe. So one pattern that I saw that was interesting and I noticed was on the reasons. One reason that I saw, you know, throughout all of their answers was that there just wasn't any evidence for God's existence, that the God of the Bible was just a made-up God like those of mythologies that we read in school from the Egyptians with Ra or the Greeks with Zeus or the Babylonians with Marduk, because gods were an idea that man created to explain the unexplainable. You know, thousands of years ago, they're like, oh, oh, oh. okay, I'm not talking about like the caveman, right? But thousands of years ago, someone got hit by lightning and they're like, oh my God, Gosh, oh my God, oh my gosh. You know, that's probably what happened long ago. And they got hit by lightning and they're like, oh, guacamole, this must be a God and that God must be angry because they didn't understand. It's what's called the God of the gaps argument that we slap on the idea of God to fill in the gaps of things that we don't currently understand. It's an argument from ignorance, you could also say. Now, through science, we've been actually able to tell and determine why lightning strikes and how it works, so we're eliminating the need for a God explanation. So the question, though, is has science pushed God out of the picture already, or is believing in the God of the Bible just a God of the gaps? That because we don't understand too much about the world, and it's an argument from ignorance, it must be God, and God must exist. Well, the short answer is no. Science has not, in fact, pushed God out of the picture. In fact, through science, we've discovered even more on how the universe works, not just lightning, and how the world operates in the complexities of life itself. So it's only natural for us to look for an explanation. It's actually not just natural, it's scientific for us to look for an explanation of these crazy things that we're discovering about the universe. I mean, think about it this way. If you were to, I don't know, find a tennis ball in the middle of the wilderness, wouldn't you wonder how it got there? Well, yeah, obviously, you you would, of course you would. Now, imagine if it wasn't a tennis ball anymore. Now it was a basketball, so it's a little bit bigger. Still, wouldn't you wonder how it got there? Especially because as you spin it around, you're like, oh my gosh, you see the logo NBA, and you're like, man, this this might, must have a, scientifically, a scientific term, an intelligent 
origin of some sort. You know, you might even ask who left this here. Now expand the size of the ball bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it's the size of our planet. The question remains the same. Wouldn't you ask, how did it get here? Naturally, you might even ask what made this or who made this. As we learn more about this world, not to mention the universe itself, the more we discover and the more we can infer an intelligent origin. Could all of this, if you look around, could all of this be the result of a mindless process of accidents of mere chance? Is that really the best possible explanation? Today, I want to share with you some of the fascinating discoveries about our world and our universe that require an explanation. In fact, there are seven reasons why we shouldn't be here to begin with. Discoveries so incredible, in fact, so improbable that it would take, well, may I say it, more faith to believe in a mindless process than it would be to believe in an intelligent source. Now, don't worry. I can, I, can, I can hear your hesitation already. You're like, oh my gosh, is this going to be a super scientific episode? Well, yes and no. It's not going to just be for the scientifically inclined per se or the nerds like me. So don't worry about that. So if you're thinking, oh, I skipped my science classes for a reason. Well, this will help you because I am going to challenge you a bit to kind of stretch your mind. Think outside of what you're comfortable because this will blow your mind. It will strengthen your trust in God and shake your skepticism of God. In 2007, a New York Times op-ed, the English physicist Paul Davies wrote this. Now, Paul Davies is not a man of faith. He's, in fact, an agnostic. This is what he wrote. Scientists are slowly waking up to an inconvenient truth, that the universe looks suspiciously like a fix, that the issue concerns the very laws of nature themselves. For 40 years... Physicists and cosmologists have been quietly collecting examples of all-too-convenient coincidences and special features that underline the laws of the universe that seem to be necessary in order for life to exist, and hence conscious beings to exist. Change any one of them, and the consequences would be lethal. What Paul Davies, who as a reminder is not a man of faith, he's agnostic, is talking about is referring to what is called the fine-tuning argument, also called the anthropic principle, coming from the Greek word anthropos, which means human being. And the fine-tuning argument is about these strangely perfect calibrations that create the perfect environment for human life that just happens to be there. Is it chance? Is it on purpose? Well, let's find out. So here are seven reasons why you and I shouldn't even be here some crazy facts. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan like myself and you're used to watching movies of of all these different planets that always, all of them have some sort of life and species, right? You got the Wookiees in Kashyyyk. You got, what else? You got Coruscant. You got the Tusken Riders in Tatooine. If you're more of a Star Trek fan, I mean, you can name all these planets with all these different species, right? Sadly, that's just science fiction. Back in the 60s, famous astronomer Carl Sagan said that there were only two requirements for life on any given planet. Now, these requirements was one, having a star, something like the sun, and the other one was being at the right distance from that sun. Well, that seems pretty easy, right? I mean, I'm sure that there's so many different planets. The universe is so big. After all, there must be so many different planets that have a sun and are at the right distance from the sun. Well... 
In the years after he made that statement, scientific discoveries have made that statement increasingly untrue. So unfortunately, my man, there are no, there's no Kashyyyk out there and there's no Tatooine that can have life like Earth does. Which actually leads us to reason number one. Are you ready? Here it goes. The size of our planet. The size of our planet, who would ever think that the size of our Earth would have would have anything to do with whether or not there's life can exist? It has actually to do with the magnetic field. Because the smaller the Earth, the, le- the weaker the magnetic field. The, the bigger the Earth, the stronger the magnetic field. If Earth were any smaller, our magnetic field would be weaker in what we call the solar wind, which is actually a stream of charged particles like electro- electrons, protons, and alpha rays blasting towards us every single moment from the sun. Yeah, kind of scary, right? Well, those solar winds would quickly strip away our atmosphere down to almost nothing so that we would end up like Mars, which is, of course, a life- lifeless world. Obviously, Matt Damon's been there and he survived, right? But yeah, that's a movie. No, it's a lifeless world. It has or it has stripped away all of its atmosphere. And that's what would happen the same if the Earth was any smaller. It would strip away our hydrogen and our oxygen, which make up water. Good job. You at least took some chemistry in school. But if the Earth was any bigger, we run into some other problems. It would have more a more powerful gravity so that no water or methane or carbon dioxide would actually be able to escape the atmosphere which would be so thick that we couldn't breathe. Uh-huh. Remember, we breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide, which if you breathe a lot of your carbon dioxide, you die. Right, exactly. Well, because the gravity would be so big, it wouldn't allow the carbon dioxide to leave, making our atmosphere unbreathable. Again, who would have thought that the Earth is the exact size to allow life? Reason number Two. And I was going to say two, like numero dos. In 1908, an asteroid only 300 feet in diameter, which is tiny compared to the size of our planet, exploded above an uninhabited region in Siberia. When it did, it instantly flattened 80 million trees and caused so much atmospheric disturbance that the effects were noticed all the way to London. Imagine if such things happened constantly. All these meteorites. As it turns out, Jupiter and Saturn are crucial on whether or not life here can exist. Think about it like this. Like, think like Saturn and Jupiter are linebackers. They run an interference for us. If they weren't there, our planet would be endlessly pelted by meteorites and asteroids, perhaps a thousand times more, and as many would make it to our surface. I mean, can you imagine spending our lives looking upward in fear, watching the movie Greenland, for example, will give you a bit of an idea of what that looks like. But we wouldn't even be alive because they would have been pelted so many times that no life could even be here to begin with. Now we know that it's only the tremendous mass and gravity of these two monstrously large planets that actually protects us. Did you know that? I had no idea until I read about it. Because what happens? They actually pull most of these speeding objects away from us, either by simply deflecting them into outer space or actually by absorbing them into themselves, like our personal bodyguards. So we have to wonder, is this merely a happy coincidence that they're just there? 
Or is it possible that our existence here was intended all along and these titanic planets were intentionally put where they are? Reason numero tres. I need you to go outside real quick and look up. Depending on what time you're listening to this, you might see it or you might not. Don't stare at the sun, okay? That Come on, man. You know the basics. Don't stare at the sun. I'm talking actually about the moon. Most of us haven't given the moon much thought, if we're honest. I mean, maybe you know that it's responsible for the tides in the ocean, right? Or for a werewolf. What? A werewolf? What am I? Am I a German person to say a werewolf? Did you know that the moon is responsible for the werewolf to take its full form? In German, we don't usually think about such things because we are very logical. We really are. Okay, back to the episode. Much of us haven't really given the moon much thought. Well, the size of our moon is actually outrageously large when compared to other moons in our solar system. But anything smaller would not have been sufficient to stabilize the wobble of our axis, and as it has as it has done for such a long time. But science tells us that the moon stabilization of our axis is actually an unavoidable prerequisite for an environment where life can exist. That is crazy. For example, it enables us to have just the right seasonal variations with mild, you know, with mild fluctuations within temperature. Obviously, they're not really counting Texas, right? Because we're we're just abnormal. You know, we're not even in this universe, Texas. We're like a bipolar weather. That's kind of what it is. But actually, the moon stabilizes our wobbling on our axis where we don't have, you know unlivable temperature type fluctuations. Our moon is actually 27% the size of Earth, which is why, which is way bigger than the relative size of any other moon in, in our solar system. I mean, think about it this way. Um, oh, I think Saturn and Jupiter have like 70-something moons. So our moon, and none of them are as big relative to the, the size of Jupiter or Saturn, but our moon being 27% the size of Earth has the precise size that gives it the gravity it needs that causes our ocean's tides, which are also crucial to the ecosystem of our coast and, you know, thus crucial and vital to the rest of the life on this planet. I mean, that our moon just happens to be the right moon for our planet? Mm -hmm. You're like, well, I'm sure that happens for every other planet. Okay, well, let's compare it to to all other planets. Mercury, Venus, they even they don't even got a moon. Okay, they broke. They don't have no moon to stabilize them. Mars has two of them, but they're so small that you could barely call them moons to, to begin with. Like I said, Jupiter and Saturn have a bunch of moons. Jupiter with roughly like seventy two, but even the biggest one is super small relative to Jupiter's size. So again, it can't give any impact to it. None of them are the perfect moon for the planet. Reason number four. Y'all ready for this? Where we are in the universe. Our location is strategic. Don't believe me? Listen to this. When we talk about how our location relative to Jupiter and Saturn is crucial for our protection from meteors, we kind of understand that, right? Well, this next reason is what is way crazier because the position of our solar system within the Milky Way galaxy is also crucial. Yes, in Milky Way, I'm talking about um, the, the galaxy. Yeah, not not the uh, the buttercup type of chocolate. No, I'm not talking about that, okay? Stay, stay focused. I know, you're probably hungry. So you're like, oh, actually, I need a Milky Way right now. Okay, stay focused here. Our solar system is actually located in the inner edge of what's called the Orion arm of our galaxy, 
which is about 26,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. Science now understands that this is crucial to life on Earth in several ways. If we were any closer to the, to the galaxy center, the radiation would be hitting us far greater than it is right now because there's so many more stars at the galaxy center than there are out here in the spiral arms where we, where we exist. So at the center there, there, there was there's more what's technically called active galactic nucleus outburst. I know, what a mouthful. It's like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Another mouthful. So there's a bunch of those. There's way more radiation, as well as what's called supernovas and more gamma ray bursts. So that would make life totally impossible. And we'd also be hit far more likely to be hit by comets, which are way more numerous at, near the center of the galaxy. In fact, authors Gonzalez and Richards of the book called The Privileged Planet call where we are in the solar system the galactic habitable zone. Pretty convenient that we're here, isn't it? <laughs> Must be an accident. Meaning that it is the ideal location for a planet like ours to form and support life. So that's if we were any closer to the galaxy's uh, center. But what if we were any further from the center? Yeah, that would create other problems. You see, stars further out are orbited by planets significantly smaller than Earth. And as we've already talked about, as the smaller Earth, that would mean no atmosphere capable of supporting life. The same authors say that our galaxy is better suited for life than 98% of other galaxies near us. Did you hear that? Our galaxy, where we happen to be, and that's, excuse me, not just our just not just our galaxy, but our solar system is 98% better suited for life than all the other ones around us. I mean, for one thing, it is shaped like a spiral. So stars in other galaxies have less ordered orbits, so they're more likely to visit their galaxy's most dangerous central regions. But us, not so much. They're also most likely through to pass through interstellar clouds, which, by the way, that's such a great movie, Interstellar. So they're much more likely to pass through interstellar clouds at dangerously high speeds. So in many ways, our galaxy, a late-type, middle-rich, you know, spiral um, galaxy, which is orderly orbits in comparatively little danger between spiral arms, just happens to be that rare galaxy suited for life. And our placement within the galaxy also just happens to be perfectly suited for life. So what should we make of all of this? Science now tells us that all of these very parameters are not merely helpful for life on Earth. They're inescapably necessary for it. Did you hear that? These facts are not like, oh, that, those are cute facts. Hmm, interesting. No, 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 wait a second. You didn't get it if you think about it. These are inescapably necessary for life. Can we face that our existence looks like nothing less than a mathematical impossibility? It's as though the clearer we see things, the harder and the most difficult that they are to take in. Okay, let's take a deep breath. Are you still with me? Has your mind exploded? If it has, good. But let's just take a place. Are you doing okay? You're holding on so far. I know. You're like, oh my gosh. If 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 your mind's having some trouble, just go ahead and give it a little bit of a rub. Get your get your cells working again. Are we back? Okay. We're in that stage in the roller coaster where it's just is it we're barely just going up, Bubba. And we're about to hit the top. This is about to blow your mind. Reason number five. 
This has to do with now the mass of the universe. We're going even bigger. We talked about our solar system, about our galaxy, about our planet, but now we're going to talk about the entire universe, the mass of the universe. Now, throw back to your high school chemistry classes. Here we go. Let's kind of review a little bit. The mass of something is basically the quantity of matter that something has, right? So the mass of the universe is 1.5 times 10 to the 53rd power. Okay, that made no sense to me either when I first read it. I was like, wow, one time. I was like, I'm pretty sure I have to count past my 10 fingers to try to solve this problem. Yes, it, we do. Now, the same way I really had no idea when, when I first read this power. So I, I, another way to understand this is to understand how many atoms are in the universe, which is about 10, or yeah, 10 to the 80th power. So that's a one followed by 80 zeros. Those are a lot of atoms, right? That's the matter, which equals the mass. We, we going so far? So one followed by 80 zeros. If it contains two trailing galaxies, which it does, and each of those galaxies contain 100 billion stars, which it does, and most of those stars are comparable to our sun, whose diameter is 865,000 miles, which it does, this universe has a lot of mass. In other words, this universe is thick. That's a... <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't keep a straight face when I said that. It's true. The universe is thick. It's got a lot of mass. And here's the craziest part. The bigger the mass, the more gravitational pull. If the universe was any thicker or any massier, the gravitational force would have been too powerful to allow it to expand in the first place when it first, you know, the Big Bang. And if it was any smaller, it would have expanded way too fast for gravity to create the stars and the planets. Did you get that? The, the, the bigger the mass, the more gravitation the pull. If it was any bigger, it would have collapsed in itself. If it was any smaller, it would have gone too fast and gravity wouldn't have time to create what it created. Now we're saying, okay, by any smaller, do you mean like, like you have a pretty good margin, you know, of error? Well, Astrophysicist Hugh Ross tells us how specific that margin needs to be. This degree of fine-tuning, he says, is so great that it's as if right after the universe universe's beginning, someone could have destroyed the possibility of life within it by subtracting on a single dime's mass. Did you catch that? A single dime's mass from the whole of the observable universe or adding a single dime's mass to it. Did you get that? The mass of a dime is what could have made the difference between our existence and non-existence. You can't even feel the weight of a dime in your pocket, bro. But that's how much mass could have made all the difference between you or me even being here. Reason number six. There are four fundamental forces at work in the universe. They literally hold the universe together. And I'm not talking about fire, earth, wind, and water. I'm not talking about those. And I'm also not talking about anything to do with Star Wars. The dark side of the force. Luke, join the dark side of the force, Luke. Your father would be proud. Okay, that's enough of that. We're not talking about any of that. We're, we're talking about gravity, the electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. Each of these is calibrated to such a degree that any deviation from them were bye-bye. 
actually, we wouldn't even, even be bye-bye because we wouldn't be here to say bye-bye or to wave bye-bye to anyone. Okay, let me explain. A universe that did not contain enough large stars or small stars wouldn't permit life to begin with. Large stars are necessary because they produce iron, and when they eventually explode, they release all the iron to everything else in the universe, which, you know, helps for life. It's crucial for life. But we also need smaller stars, like our sun, that can burn for longer periods of time than the, long, than the bigger ones. But here's the catch. For there to be such a variety of stars to exist depends on the ratio between the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force. There must be balance in the force, the yin and the yang, to put it one way. For such a variety, or I should say for such a precision to even exist, there has to be quite the ratio. I want you to listen to this. How precise does this ratio need to be between the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force, the yin and the yang? It has to be exact, down to one part in 10 to the 40th power. So that's one followed by 40 zeros. If you ain't a genius at math, like me, let me explain. One in a million is six zeros. One in a billion, what is that like? I think that's nine zeros, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure. You can correct me if I'm wrong. So that seems comprehensible, right? A billion dollars, we understand a billion dollars. I mean, you know, I deposited a billion dollar check last week. No problem. You know, this is what we do all the time. That's what we do. No problem. It seems somewhat comprehensible. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about one app followed by 40 zeros. The same astrophysicist, Hugh Ross, gives us an illustration that might help us appreciate what one in 10 to the 40th power actually means. So he tells us to imagine covering the entire United States, Alaska, Canada, Mexico, and half of Central America with what? You guessed it, dimes. Cover it all. Take your time because it's going to take you a long time. Now repeat this process until they're stacked up all the way to the moon with dimes. That would make it right around 240,000 miles up pile, okay? You got that so far? Great. Once this is all completed, do the same thing a billion more times. You kind of get it a little bit more, right? Okay, so cover the entire United States, Mexico, half of Central America, and Alaska, and Canada up to the moon a billion more times. Once you've done that, Tell a friend that among these dimes covering the billions of continents with the height of the moon is a single red dime. It could be anywhere, and you got to refuse to tell your friend where it is, no matter how close they are. If you can imagine that, a single red dime somewhere in those moon-high piles covering a billion different continents, you have a pretty solid idea of the maximum amount of deviation that can be in the ratio between the gravitational and electromagnetic forces in order for life to exist. If you're overwhelmed at this point, good, join the club. But we haven't even mentioned numero siete. Reason number seven, the most crazy fact of them all, the most crazy ratio that you and I shouldn't even be here. The American Nobel Prize winning physicist, Steven Weinberg, determined what is referred to as the cosmological constant talking about the energy density of the universe. So Weinberg says that if the value of this cosmological constant were different by just one part in 10 to the 120th power, I'm going to say that again. I'm going to preach it to the back. To the 120th power, life could not exist. 
holy guacamole, someone have mercy on me. We're telling one and 10 to the 120th power. We understand that there's one uh, to the 80th power of atoms in this whole world. We understand that one to the 40th power is a different ratio, but one to the 120th? For reference, a trillion is eight zeros. A quadrillion is 15. A sextillion is 21. But we are talking about 120 zeros, my friend. 120 zeros and no joke, dude. No, bro, my bro. It's serious, dude. Our minds can't even begin to fathom such a number. Yet, this is simply what science, advanced as it is now, requires us to accept. So using the scientific approach of abduction, inferring to the best explanation, at what point do we see that you and I being alive at this very moment, that our existence cannot be, anything close to some random occurrence. Not to mention that all of these numbers would need to be multiplied by each other to get the full picture. So simply to shrug our shoulders and say, well, it all happened by chance, I guess. My friend, saying that would be infinitely dumber than what Jim Carrey said after being told by the pretty girl that the chances of her dating him would be one in a million. So you're telling me there's a chance, he said. Well, no, no, buddy, there's no chance. We're not talking about one in a million. We're talking about one to the 120th power. Yeah, pretty crazy. I hope these seven reasons just blew your mind. We'll see you in the next episode of The Andrew Amon Show.